I'm gonna take one, baby. So we are back on the Take One podcast, and I am so excited for this episode. We have Dr. Brooke Laurent here, um, and I'm just so happy to talk to her. Um, and we're celebrating Women's History Month, and we're going to continue on these narratives. So I also have Jesse Harvey here on the podcast, helping me out, and Artez Henderson. So hey. <laughs> Everybody's here. Okay, so let's go ahead and get started. Uh, Brooke, can you give us a little background of where you're from and how you got to where you are? Sure. Um, and I'll, I just want to say again, thank you for having me and allowing me to share my story and just the great work that you and your team are doing. I think it's very powerful um, that you have this platform and it's very needed for this time. Um, so um, I am originally from the Northeast, New Jersey. Um, I, my, my parents are of Haitian descent. Uh, they were born in Haiti. I was born here. Um, and I was really raised in a migrant community. My family's, uh, church, my parents were ministers, my family church was really full of migrant Haitians. And so I was really more so experiencing the Haitian Caribbean culture. Um, I was literally living in a bubble. Um, but it was interesting because, because I was living in both worlds, you know, um, as a first generation person and living in a migrant community, um, our, my sisters and I have two younger siblings. We, we fell into this place where we were kind of this in between of the, of this worlds for our congregants, our members. So when it came to, you know, issues with health and trying to navigate where people get care for health, where it came to people trying to enroll their kids for school. My sisters and I would kind of try to be that in between to help people navigate that. My family was. And so I got to discover there were significant issues with the healthcare system in terms of access. Um, there was different, um, really just, and there was just health disparities. And what I mean by disparities is defined as different health outcomes in, in groups of people for various re, re, re reasons. And so in this, in this setting, it was in a micro community where, um, you know, health literacy was a thing or just literacy, like English as you know, was, was, you know, a challenge and then also how to navigate that. But these were hardworking folks who wanted the best for their families. And we really relied in that community to support one another. I think that was one of the first, um, inclination I was going to go down this path of, of medicine. I'm a, I'm, I'm an osteopathic family medicine physician, I should say. I'm, I, I chair of the Department of Clinical Medicine at NYIT, College of Osteopathic Medicine at Arkansas State University. Um, but before I got to that place, these are the things, these ex lived experiences I had as a child certainly have supported that. Another thing was, um, my family, I had my, my, my grandparents, great-grandparents, were um, in their in their communities in Haiti were known to bring some type of or um, they were seen as healers in their community and so mm -hmm. I knew about these stories. It's not like they went to to medicine. There wasn't like a medical school to go, you know, in that island, but it they were seen as healers, re bringing remedies, etc. So I was remembering these things. I was exposed to those things, and so it made sense to me that um, 
everyone, regardless of a degree, has a role in participating in the healing of their community, the healing of their family in some degree. And um, my path in that was to pursue a degree in medicine. Um, so that journey, uh, yeah, just had incredible people in my life that has uh, led me to where I am in Arkansas. But I had mentors and sponsors who've opened doors for me to uh, be an administrative leader to impact medicine through education, uh, through professional development. And I, I am now doing so through population health. Um, and so, yeah, those are the ways that I've, I've, I've been influenced um, into where I am um, right now. And I'll, whenever you want me to talk about the things in between, I'll be more than happy to talk about that too. Brooke, I, I have a question. I'm like struck by the fact that you were picking up on health disparities at a young age mm -hmm. and like what made you dialed into healthcare issues? Like, was there an illness or um, yeah, what that's, was that on your radar? That's a good question. So um, it wasn't until I was in high school, um, we were exposed to this kind of like a pathway program they had for minorities who want to go into healthcare. And they were at the college level. I think they were doing recruiting and they identified my high school. I went to like an all girls Catholic high school. And I ran into this recruiter who, whose intention is to seek out minority students and get an interest in, in the sciences. And so really, if it hadn't been for her seeking me out, I wouldn't have known about this program at in this college it was Montclair State University in New Jersey, and um, and that's that's when it became more clear that I wanted to do it. I don't think I was burning to say I'm going to be in medicine at a young age. Um, it wasn't like a huge epiphany. It was like an opportunity that came, and I said, "This makes sense." The next best thing to do is to pursue this. And really, you've had people who were just doing what they were called to do, which affected my life. So her role was to recruit people. And I was there. And so that actually opened up where I went to medical school and where I have my 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 career right now as an academician and a, and a medicine, a clinician, a physician. So that's how that came upon that came about. Yeah. yeah. Gotcha. Bro, can you break down that? I can't even say it. I can academician so yeah. essentially I'm, I'm a physician who teaches medicine so i teach students um medical students um and i also oversee faculty who teach our medical students so i participate in the creation or the implementation of the curriculum for medical school uh specifically in the doctor patient relationship so how do students communicate interpersonal skills um, how do you um, assess cultural competencies when you're engaging with patients in different populations? Um, how do you do a physical exam? How are you reading the cues of a patient to understand where they're coming from when you're addressing behavioral changes and, um, you know, how to make clinical decisions, like how to just practice medicine and keeping those things in mind. So we basically teach them and assess them in interpersonal skills, interpersonal skills, uh, physical exam skills, and clinical decision-making skills. So you're not busy at all. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, I'm joking. No, nah, I'm joking. That sounds like a handful. Just a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I, I appreciate that. Thank you for explaining that. Sure. So I have another question. And, and Brooke, I know that you are so humble. Uh, the first time I met Brooke, y'all, um, I think it was like for choir rehearsal or something. 
And I mean, she was just so humble. And I just knew she had this amazing voice. That's, that's oh, all, gosh. you know, we were in rehearsal mm-hmm. and I'm just like, Ooh, who is this? Lord, oh, my. Like, trying to, you know, mm-hmm. remain calm and like <laughs> teach the parts. And I'm like, okay. Um, but anyway, we had coffee after. And I remember you were telling me about, um, I think something you had published and it was like kind of talking about the doctor patient relationship. Mm-hmm. And I think it was something about like implicit bias or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. I'm probably messing this up because this was mm-hmm. years ago. And I remember you talking about it. And I'm like, Oh, Brooke is a big deal, but you just oh. don't, <laughs> you don't, you're so humble. You're so humble. So I'm saying this when I ask this question, I need you to just like answer the question, please, ma'am. Okay. Yeah. So what are some of the victories you have had on this journey? Cause I know I don't even know. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm the most, I'll tell you the most recent victory was the establishment of the Delta Population Health Institute. Okay. Um, it's the community engagement arm of the medical school. And this is what, this is how it came about. So as I'm practicing medicine, especially in my, my residency, I did my residency in, um, in Delaware. It was in an urban setting. And I started to realize that no matter how well I practiced medicine and gave the best prescription and management and counseled, I realized very quickly that there are factors outside the examination room and outside the clinic that was driving the health outcomes that were beyond what I was taught in medical school. Later on, I found out the word for that was social determinants of health. And that is the conditions where we live, learn, work, play, and pray, which data has shown are the main and the strongest drivers for health outcomes. And we also are seeing that it's also driving health disparities where we see Black, Indigenous, and people of color who have significant or greater prevalence of heart disease, of cancer. But that disparity, we also see in those, what I call the social determinants of health, the conditions where we live, learn, work, grow, play, and pray. And so what that means is if we are to look at policies or discriminatory policies that happen in each of those sectors, in housing laws that we've known before, like redlining, educational opportunities, food security, um, economic stability and economic mobility. Uh, When you have policies that have affected all those things, no wonder, and those things drive health outcomes, no wonder we have health disparities where you have Black, Indigenous, people of color, folks in rural areas who are significantly despaired when it comes to health outcomes. And so with the acquiring of this knowledge, I wanted to impact medicine in a different way where one, I wanted this knowledge to be more widespread to our students. Now, I understand they still have to learn how to be good doctors in the clinic, but what what also happens, which a lot of medical students don't, aren't prepared to or really realize is the moment you're called doctor, all of a sudden people extrapolate your intelligence and science to intelligence of leadership. And that's not true. Like you are a good doctor. It doesn't mean you're a good leader. And you need to get training in that and get understanding of context before you can lead anyone. Right. So the area for social determinants of health and through our leadership, quite frankly, I was surrounded by leaders who were who were already thinking this way. Um, 
allowed me and gave me the funding, institutional backing, the support, the staff to establish the Institute, because what we're doing is we're leveraging our institutional assets in education, policy, research, and community engagement to address those social determinants of health in rural communities in the Delta. So working... So I enjoy working with non-traditional health partners. So usually when people think, oh, who's your health partner? I am not talking about a hospital and clinic. I'm talking about economic developers, rural developers, people in the food system, people in education. I am inviting those sectors to the table. And I'm saying, if you were to think about health and how it intersects with your sector, how can it drive at minimum your bottom line for, and help you achieve your goals? And what are some ways that we could be synergistic to address some broad health initiative? So if someone's about economic mobility and economic stability, that's a health issue because you can't pay for your bills. You can't get your prescriptions. Um, and I need, and I'm concerned about that. Right. Um, housing is a health issue. Right. If you're not housed and you're unhoused, you are not healthy. <laughs> OK, um, so to me, we need to start having a more synergistic and holistic view about health beyond a hospital and a doctor's visit and being able to establish this institution to share this broader vision of health across all the sectors is a step in the direction to create, um, you know, a culture of health in the communities that we engage with and have them envision what a culture of health looks like. So, that would be one of the greatest victories. Um, I still provide patient, I do patient care. I have one-on-one encounters, but being able to have some systematic impact in this realm has been really important. And also to influence the medical curriculum to incorporate this is my goal. We have to be aware of these drivers of health uh, when it comes to addressing these health disparities. Oh my gosh, that is awesome. (laughs) I'm like... I knew it. I knew there was things I didn't know. <laughs> but just, I mean, man, like all the conversations I'm thinking about, we've had about like mm-hmm. systems and systematic racism and disparities, and all that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. Like you are yeah. literally addressing those things mm-hmm. and just, man, that's just awesome. And it, it is like we can't be in silos with all of this stuff. Like, it really right. Has to be. That is correct. That is, yeah. That's amazing. I mean, like, that is like see and eat, meet and eat. Like, you are like the poster child. <laughs> Wow. Wow. But that's so needed. Um, And Brooke, I'm sure like the pandemic really drove a lot of this home. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The pandemic. So, yeah, I wonder. Revealed the pandemic revealed the the very strong intersections of health and economic stability. Right. So we're telling and believe me, I we needed to get vaccinated and boosted. We needed to wear masks. We needed to social distance. But like for the, the greater number of folks who were in jobs where you couldn't do those things, right. you couldn't take paid time off. Right. Um, there's a greater prevalence of people of color in these places. There aren't any paid time, sick time off. Right. So who's greatly despaired if these policies are in place? And besides the pandemic, we're 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 a developed developed nation, and we are we are the only nation in that category that doesn't have paid maternity leave. We have it, and I mean it could be one to two months, but in other countries it's up to a year, and other countries have paternity leave. 
So it's just that as a country, we haven't we haven't done what we should have done. There's a lot of political issues that that needs to be navigated and dealt with to do that. But um, going back to the pandemic, it really showed like we knew this was like the moment they were telling us you need you need to stay home. You're going to be quarantined for 14 days. I remember we were setting up a contact tracing enterprise for Arkansas State University, where we did contact tracing for faculty, staff, et cetera. And it there was like almost laughter when I said, okay, you have to, you have to quarantine for 14 days. That was in the beginning where we had no vaccines or anything. Wow. And they were like, and I and I was like, yeah, that sounds ridiculous. I understand that. I'm just saying what the CDC guidelines were. But folks is like, I can't take 14 days off. Who's going to take care of my kids? They got to go to, you know, so so there were just so many things that um I think brought light to it. I'm concerned that the momentum will be lost. Mm. People are going to go back to normal, quote unquote, normal, which is actually abnormal. Mm. Um, And um, there is more attention. There's more policies on a state and federal level that's paying attention to this. Um, The model of having multi-sector collaborations to address health actually could be incentivized now. So there's federal funding that's available now to try to have organizations think with multiple sectors how to address health. Um, but there needs to be some policy changes. Um, it, again, the pandemic just, it wasn't a surprise for the folks who were on the ground. They knew this was going to happen, but it became more explicit. And um, and also we were so interconnected, right? Like, you know, um, I, I we, we think we'll, all, all the things that we take for granted, what we had could not be delivered like we needed to be delivered because we it's connected to people, but people were not getting the care that they need. So, yeah, that's a good question. Um, it's built some momentum. It sheds some light. I'm concerned we might lose some momentum if we don't act on it. Certainly, politically, it's hard to move the needle on things. And if you, you're not folk having bipartisan um, collaboration for things, you know, there, there are things that we can miss if we're not um, putting people first. And so those are those are the concerns that I have right now. Well, and I, it was really depressing in the early days of the pandemic to see how quickly it was politicized and sure. all of a sudden we're questioning doctors. So what I'd like to know, what was that like for you being a black woman, being a doctor, being in a position of speaking the truth? Um, what was that like for you? Yeah, that's that's a that's a good question. So historically, the medical field has a very um, just a very bad history when it comes to black, indigenous and people of color uh, in the healthcare system. Um, there are documented um, events such as um, how folks in BIPOC communities were part of research studies and were treated unethically and not treated for illnesses when they found treatments, specifically Tuskegee, we talk about syphilis treatment. So, you know, historically communities remember that. Prior to the pandemic, I mean, the community members that I engage with and I have um, a higher population of, of, of BIPOC patients, you know, I'll just walk into the room and people start crying. And I'm like, why are you crying? I never saw a black physician before. Wow. Um, I've never been heard before. I'll do a physical exam on someone. No one has ever done a physical exam on me. And I'm like, what in the world? Now, I don't know if that was a black or white thing. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that is that's an atrocity. How is that possible that you, you no one has laid hands on you? 
So, um, and when they, and then when they say that, I would say, and, and to me, it's not a, it's not an, a reward when I'm that, that is the saddest thing I've ever heard um, <laughs> that someone of color came into. And so um, the same disparities that we're seeing in health outcomes is that you see that they're, they're the same disparities you see in the representation of healthcare professionals and physicians, the same number of black men who applied to medical school in the seventies is the same as today. There is a problem. Okay. Um, and so, um, so there's so many elements of this that I can pull from, but I'll say that, uh, as hard as it was to convince folks to get vaccines in majority uh, white populations, it was also hard to do that in BIPOC populations as well. Okay. So because there were trust issues now, as a woman of color, as a black woman giving information, they were open to that, right. Um, to hear the conversations, et cetera, but it's still a hard sell because of the historical elements I'd mentioned before. Um, and so um, yeah, I, I don't take it for granted, but I also don't think because I'm a black physician, you're going to listen to me either. <laughs> like, like there's so many elements, there's so many elements to that. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I, I am seeing the harm in what the historical, um, what happened historically with BIPOC communities and it's affecting us today. So one of the ways we are trying to address that is identifying influencers and community champions in these communities mm -hmm. and giving them the knowledge that may not be readily available or they're probably inundated with misinformation, but they know something is wrong and they want to address it. So if that, is a, if that person is an influencer and a champion in their community, we will talk to them and say, you have people's attention more than I would. Okay. And I also don't want to say not only a racial divide, there's a socioeconomic divide, which probably is a little bit stronger to deal with than a racial divide in some circumstances. So when someone is able to engage um, and they see someone that's from their community, you know, my New Jersey accent doesn't help too. So those are things that is, yeah, I mean, it's real. You're not from around here. And I get that mm -hmm. from BIPOC communities and white can be like, so, and I, and I appreciate that. Like I get it because especially in rural communities, unfortunately they've had experiences with academic institutions where they want to investigate and research. And you're like, okay, well, what is the benefit that this investigation will be to the community that you're trying to study? Right. Are they part of the entire process of your investigation? What is the reward of what you're learning that's going to be a beneficial to them? So those are the things that we are cautious about. Um, those are the elements that we have to navigate. Um, you know, we're intentional about making our team diverse to make sure it reflects the people that we serve from the faculty that teach our students to the you know staff that we have with the Delta Population Health Institute, because we know representation is important, but it's not just that too, right? Everyone has to feel like they belong, that they're thriving and that they're excelling as well. Right. Brooke, it's, it's obvious you're passionate about you know, what you do and this call that God has put on your life. And, and it's a holistic you know, approach. So what, what keeps you motivated? You know, what keeps you going as you wake up and you know, you address these various challenges mm -hmm. and even through your own initiative, you know, collaborating with other people. So you're trying to, you know, fill in the gap, stand in the gap. But what keeps you motivated? Um, I was very fortunate to. 
um, engage with the ministry. It was a faith and work ministry in New York. Um, a rendition of that is called Goldenwood right now. And it was a call for believers who um, are, you know, in the workplace, but wanted to know, well, how does this, how does what I do have anything to do with the, with God's grand narrative for us as human beings on the earth redemptively, right? Um, one powerful question that was asked in this process is, what would your work look like if we were, if the kingdom has come officially, like we're in the in-between and not yet, but what would your work look like after Christ comes back and the earth is restored? And that just caused me to think very differently about, well, what, what is it? So, you know, there's an element where my job is addressing brokenness in the world, in the body and in systems and communities. But there's also this opportunity where I feel like God is calling us to step into co-creation now. And what motivates me in this discussion of co-creation is identifying where things are working, where things are beautiful, what we can, we can build upon. And that motivates me. It can be incredibly dark and mm -hmm. disheartening. And you can lose hope when you're talking about people who are blatantly trying to block people from getting not only care, but like to live, right? Mm -hmm. And so when I have an opportunity to be remain hopeful about the, about the kingdom fully established and how God today is calling me to like, how can you imagine what you're doing and co-create with God in this moment? And that he is moving through that, that gives me incredible, incredible hope. Um, and so it's just been helpful to provide that framework. Uh, when you think about revelation, you know, um, of the new Jerusalem, right. Mm -hmm. What, what does that look like in what you're, and maybe I'm, I'm, of course I won't be, you know, that he were healed, but then what does that look like with the knowledge I have to participate in the learning and the growing and co-creation? So anyway, being part of that ministry has allowed me to be hopeful, imaginative, and to um, identify the redemptive things God is doing on the earth today and how I can participate in that. So those are things that give me, that give me hope. Community gives me hope. Um, you know, the body of Christ gives me hope. Yeah. Um, of course, Christ is my hope. And not getting lost in that, you know, um, I think it's important that, I think as a professional, not to get so tied to the word impact. It can be an idol. It could mm -hmm. be so subjective. Yeah. And I've learned to make uh, impact is going to be defined by how well I obeyed the Lord yeah. because he right. could be calling me to something that is failing. And my job is just to show up and do this thing. Mm -hmm. And so if I think from it, that perspective, I won't be chasing an idol of like, this is impact. The law was changed. 20,000 people were saved from cancer. Like that, you know, is, it, I will, I will go into this dark place because it doesn't happen that way. And if I just say like, what is my role for now? I did my job. This is, this is it. So, um, and I'm not saying I'm not tempted with that. Like I, I'm a very like impact driven person. Like I want to see results. Like I want people to get better. <laughs> I get frustrated when they don't, but if I am not remaining in the spirit to think about and be, be so careful about what the spirit of God is like telling me to hear 
for this moment, for this time, what I'm called to do, like I really can go into a dark place. Anyone can. I'm, I'm, I, I don't know how people do it uh, if they're just looking just for this needle to move. I mean, that's incredibly hard. That's a good word. I'm, I'm stepping out on the limb here. Um, so bear with me on that sure. theological, uh, this theological uh, wave that you're going. Jesus, the God man, didn't heal everybody, right? Right. So he's in tune with the Father, saying, "Okay." Mm. This was my mission. This is my assignment. Now it's time to move on. Right. And so he could very well heal everybody, you know, sure. every sickness and, and all of those things. But what you're saying, I believe you modeling. How can mm. I be in tune with the spirit as a as the father leads me to different chapters and seasons and opportunities? So Absolutely. Absolutely. That's so good. Like your impact is how well you <laughs> obeyed the Lord. Like I feel like that just needs to be. Mm-hmm. Oh man, that's amazing. Um, mm-hmm. Y'all, Brooke is. I try to tell these folks. I try to tell people. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm a believer. Just preaching. Like, you know, you we met one time, coffee with her. She is up preaching the whole sermon. Like, praise the Lord. All right. So, your, your story is so inspiring. Everything you're sharing with us is so inspiring. Um, but I do want to go back to just your personal journey. Mm-hmm. Um, so what would you say were some obstacles? I mean, becoming a physician is no small task, mm-hmm. uh, more or less, you know, sharing a department, creating this institute, um, just mm-hmm. any point in your journey, any obstacles you want to share that you were able to. Overcome? Yeah, the, the, it is hard. Um, you know, four, four years of undergraduate, four years of, of, of medical school, three years of residency training. It, it is hard. Uh, there's high burnout rates. People could get really exhausted. Um, some of my exercises in this residency program that I was doing for faith and work was we had to map out what was happening in our lives vocationally, what was happening in our lives spiritually. And it was a great exercise because the time that it was hardest in terms of like, this is a lot of work. I, I was, I was in a setting that was very spiritually supportive. Like I was in a church that was so, I was surrounded by, you know, people who loved the Lord, who heard prophetically and balanced, um, who were like, who, who were people of prayer. And, and that really upheld me so much. So I was able to see God's grace in those very difficult times, but it would be just the, the practice and the discipline of it. I also want to say everyone has a different journey. Um, there for me, I mean, God allowed me to see, I think what should happen. And that's what I experienced. I got not only mentorship and support by people of color, there were white people who loved me to death and opened doors for me too. And that was, that's incredibly redemptive. It's incredibly powerful. And I think that's what should happen, right? So I experienced that. I was in a residency program where there were mostly women leaders. Um, My first male boss is now, I'm just now having my first mill. Up to this point, I've only had female bosses, women bosses. So I, my point of reference was not was in what was, was not what's in my way. It's what am I capable of? That was my point of reference. And I am not knocking what other people have experienced because those things are real. Like I have seen it. Those stories are real. There are people who literally had blocks put in front of them intentionally. I've, I've heard these stories. It is not easy. Um, the medical field is shifting. You, it used to be more men than women, but our medical school and across the country, you have actually 50-50 for men and women in medical school and more so more women actually is coming over. So we are seeing a shift 
where we're seeing that. But we need more diversity in leadership. Like they may be physicians, but we don't see that much going in leadership and academics and and hospital systems. And that's where we do need to see more diversity. So um, I was so blessed to be exposed to how it ought to be. Um, It's just the discipline is just hard. I mean, you know, the rotations we went through and not sleeping and not messing up and you got to, you know, someone's life is in your hands, (laughs) you know, and, um, you know, you go into your residency the first day, the scariest day of anyone's life is after you finish uh, medical school and now you're a resident and you got to sign on that paper. You had faculty supervision, but still like you had to make decisions. You like, they, they, they let me graduate and do this thing. This is, really today. This, this is happening today, you know, and obviously, yes, I graduated. I took my test. I demonstrate, I demonstrated my competencies, but your, your confidence doesn't just turn on with a degree. You know what I mean? You yeah. need support, you need mentorship, you need guidance, you need a good educational system. And so I was fortunate to, to have those things, but those barriers are, are real. There are people who are not rooting for you. But um, I did connect my, I did set boundaries. I, the Lord discernment is so key. You got to have discernment about the people that are around you. Um, I am not quick to um, make assumptions about people's intentions. I'm more curious. I said, listen, this is what I observed. Help me understand why this was my observation. Because I, I can't just jump and make conclusions about a lot of different stuff, but why you did different stuff, because they're not even aware of themselves. But I will mirror, bring a mirror to you and say, this is what I'm observing. Help me understand why this happened. And I want you to own it because you're going to have to you're going to have to bring a solution to this problem. OK, that could be applied to gender, race or any other conflict or issues or whatever. And to me owning where I messed up, too. OK, I have to be open to feedback. I have to be open to where I messed up so I can grow as well. Um, so those are the things I've, I've, I've had to, to navigate, but it was, it's just a hard process. It's not an easy process. Um, the, there's increased suicide rates within healthcare professionals and physicians. Um, people are just burnt out, um, residency back in the day. It's like, it could be a a hundred hour work week going on and on and on and on. So it's not healthy. It's like, you're almost providing care and you're drunk. You know what I mean? Like you're delirious. Yeah. So, so those, those things inherently within the system needs to change. And it's just hard. I think they've generally made changes by the way, but it's just, it's just a hard process. Um, plus team dynamics and people who are, you know, racist and ism or whatever ism you want to put in there. Those, those are there too. So you got to navigate those things, but I'm telling you, had it not been God's power and grace in the community that I had, I mean, prophetic words telling me I'm going to make it, <laughs> you know, I mean, those things gave me life. It yeah. gave me life. Um, I, I believe when I went to medical school, that was the first time I moved away from home. You know, I was in, I encountered a, a school of people who pray. I've never seen this power before. People just, I mean, they just was, I mean, obsessed with prayer and I'm like, this is where it's at. So, um, <laughs> spiritually worshiping, spending time in the presence of God. Like that to me was, I mean, I would not be able to do this had it not been that. It's not possible to me. I just don't know. But for me, it was not going to be possible. <laughs> yeah. So, um, oh God, was I just, just gives me chills to think of God's grace mm-hmm. in that whole, I mean, oh God was so, it is so good. It was so yeah. powerful. Mm-hmm. Brooke, did you grow up in the church? What, what I was. Mm-hmm. My parents and father is a pastor. I was 
raised in the church and, you know, led worship and I had to play the drum. My sister got on a keyboard and we did Sunday <laughs> school, you know, we, we, you know, like it was just a typical. Gotcha. <laughs> Hey. PK, hey, PK. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, all right. So you did, you you spoke a little bit to this um, with all the isms. So I know that you are the whole intersectionality of being mm-hmm. Black and a woman. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm sure like, and, and in leadership now, yeah. um, even though things are changing in leadership, that's yeah. normally, of a lot of fields, that's normally white male. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And so, yeah, like, have you, do, are there any specific or um, any pressures that you feel specifically because yeah. of, of the, those isms? Or here, you know? here, here, here is the thing I'm dealing with right now. When I enter into these spaces, for some reason, I am now, I have been, I have been dubbed as the DEI expert. Okay. And so diversity, equity, inclusion. And I think it's important and we need to have this thing, but I also am concerned that I would get pigeonholed in that. Okay. Now the space of diversity, equity, inclusion is expansive and amazing because when you break down the nooks and cranny of this stuff, it's like, you're talking about human psychology. You're talking about conflict management. You're talking about so many things. So people who are in this space are incredibly, incredible leaders. Like they can suspend and hold so many different perspectives, navigate the nuances in it. I mean, it's just incredible. And, and, from the outside, people don't get it. People just think you're coming in with rules and policies and how you're going to make your life miserable. And, you know, so that's how they're thinking. So it's important that they know that I'm not here for that. Like, I'm going to just bring that in because of who I am, but I'm not here to solve all the DEI issues. Right. Okay. So that's the thing I'm struggling right now. It's putting me in a, in a box Um, There's so many things that we need to talk about and integrate in that. Let's do that. Um, And I think people and folks who are leaders, I mean, there's like leaders in DEI spaces. They are incredible, incredible leaders. Like, I mean, anyone who can stay in the space of conflict management and and understand communication and try to get, you know, I mean, that's just a really interesting space. And I'm not a DEI expert. Like I'm, I'm just, so I don't want to diminish that role because of my, my, my background and my identities. Like that's the disservice to that discipline and to that practice. So um, I think that's the thing I struggle with the most, but certainly I remember one of my, my mentors, Dr. Barbara Ross Lee, she's the first um, African-American Dean of a U.S. medical school. And um, she was saying being the first is not a reward, Like, it's not a trophy. That's sad, number one. And then number two, it's what I do with that that's important. Right. So, um, and I keep that in mind as as I'm in these different different spaces. Um, And I do know that when I'm encountering them and I'm not someone they usually, you know, um, you know, are used to being in this space. um, I understand what it means, what those impressions mean, but also... I have a role and responsibility there. Um, and I, I take that seriously. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. Um, I feel like I've heard that from other people mm-hmm. of color. It's specifically black women. Mm-hmm. And wherever, wherever they are, they're just like, I don't want to be the expert just because I'm black and I'm white. Right. 
Mm. Um, cause I, I'm yeah. not exactly here for that in this. <laughs> yeah. Know, yeah. yeah. And there are amazing thought leaders. Uh, yeah, there place. are. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. That's like saying you're a doctor cause you wear a white coat. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> you know, now I understand the thinking though, right. We're talking about lived experiences, but that's such a monolithic way. I cannot represent the lived experiences of all people of color. So that's just, it's a disservice uh, to other folks. So that's what I'm cautious about. Yeah. 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 That, that makes a whole lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So I'm going to shift the conversation a little bit um, to, and I, I think, you kind of spoke to this already, but like, what does legacy mean to you? Mm-hmm. Like, what? Is, how do how do you think about that? Yeah, I think I think that goes back to the impact question. Um, yeah. You know, um, what makes my heart sing is when, uh, I, as an educator, when people say "aha," um, I, I'm getting it. Yeah. But it's not like I get it, but there's actual transformation in a person's life. Yeah. That makes my heart sing so much. Mm-hmm. And um, when people are connecting the dots in their mind about themselves, about their lives, and then they feel empowered to make changes is super powerful to me. And that's a hard thing, by the way. Like, you know... A, a minister and a pastor who's in this space, like you're, it's like, you know, people are in different stages of change and behaviors and all this type of stuff. You got to tarry with them, walk with them and all this type of stuff. That's why it is a calling. Um, <laughs> but when you're able to see that people are, are really transformed, it's such a, such a powerful thing. I'm grateful that I'm in a place where I can participate in that. But I, I attach that again to the, the way that I define um, impact. Yeah. And, um, if, if God is pleased, I did my job. Amen. Amen. I did my job. That's mm-hmm. it. That's it right there. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So what would you say is your hope for the future of women in medicine and, or just women in leadership in general? Hmm. Well, besides the, there are obvious points like representation and people being present, et cetera, you know, being at the table, you know, I hope, I hope that's there, but once you're at the table, that's like not even halfway there. It's mm-hmm. like, now that I'm there, now let's work out this dynamic, right? How a person is heard how a person is working in a a certain dynamic in that space. I think um, I'll say, I'll say this, the thing that I want to see more happen. I've had experiences with young people who are like the moment they like see someone that, that, that was outside of their universe do something. They're like, I didn't even know you existed in the world. And I really want more, I'm hoping that more um, young people have more exposure about what's possible. Like you gotta see something to believe it. You have to have this vision of something to believe it. And um, I'm all about, there's an awesome like Olympic commercial about these young people watching these athletes 
that look like them doing stuff. And it's just this beautiful view of their face lit up and saying, right. oh, that person looks like me. And so that is just, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I hope that there's more exposure mm-hmm. and um, that, that, that young children and young people can see what's possible. That's my hope, really. It's one, one of my hopes anyway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Brooke, thank you so much. Uh, Artez, Jesse, thank did you. you have any follow-up questions that I may have missed? No, I don't. I appreciate it, Brooke. Thanks a lot. Yes, thank you so oh, much. Thank you for having me. I'm going to be chewing on that definition of impact for a long time. <laughs> Just to review, you guys, impact is how well we are obeying the Lord. Um, mm. Man, that's so rich. So thank you so much, Brooke. And that thank you fun. so much. I enjoy talking to all of you. This was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. So that's it, y'all. Have a great week. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Take One Podcast.